And it came to pass in the third year of the desert war that Paul Muad'Dib lay alone in the cave of birds beneath the Kiswa hangings of an inner cell. And he lay as one dead, caught up in the revelation of the water of life, his being translated beyond the boundaries of time by the poison that gives life. Thus was the prophecy made true that the Lisan al-Gaib might be both dead and alive. Collected Legends of Arrakis by the Princess Irulan Cheney came up out of the Habanya Basin in the pre-dawn darkness, hearing the thopter that had brought her from the south go whir-whirring off to a hiding place in the vastness. Around her the escort kept its distance, fanning out into the rocks of the ridge to probe for dangers, and giving the mate of Muad'Dib, the mother of his firstborn, the thing she had requested, a moment to walk alone. Why did he summon me? she asked herself. He told me before that I must remain in the south with little Leto and Alia. She gathered her robe and leaped lightly up across a barrier rock and onto the climbing path that only the desert trained could recognize in the darkness. Pebbles slithered underfoot and she danced across them without considering the nimbleness required. The climb was exhilarating, easing the fears that had fermented in her because of her escort's silent withdrawal and the fact that a precious thopter had been sent for her. She felt the inner leaping at the nearness of reunion with Paul Muad'Dib, her Usul. His name might be a battle cry over all the land, Muad'Dib, 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 but she knew a different man by a different name, the father of her son, the tender lover. A great figure loomed out of the rocks above her, beckoning for speed. She quickened her pace. Dawn birds already were calling and lifting into the sky. A dim spread of light grew across the eastern horizon. The figure above was not one of her own escort. Othheim? she wondered, marking a familiarity of movement and manner. She came up to him, recognized in the growing light the broad, flat features of the Fadaikin lieutenant, his hood open and mouth filter loosely fastened, the way one did sometimes when venturing out on the desert for only a moment. Hurry, he hissed, and led her down the secret crevasse into the hidden cave. It will be light soon, he whispered, as he held a door seal open for her. The Harkonnens have been making desperation patrols over some of this region. We dare not chance discovery now. They emerged into the narrow side-passage entrance to the cave of birds. Glow-globes came alight. Othheim pressed past her, said, Follow me, quickly now. They sped down the passage, through another valve door, another passage, and through hangings into what had been the Syadina's alcove in the days when this was an overday rest cave. Rugs and cushions now covered the floor. Woven hangings with a red figure of a hawk hid the rock walls. A low field desk at one side was strewn with papers from which lifted the aroma of their spice origin. The Reverend Mother sat alone directly opposite the entrance. She looked up with the inward stare that made the uninitiated tremble. Othheim pressed palms together, said, I have brought Cheney. He bowed, retreated through the hangings. And Jessica thought, How do I tell Cheney? How is my grandson? Jessica asked. So it's to be the ritual greeting, Cheney thought, and her fears returned. Where is Muad'Dib? Why isn't he here to greet me? He is healthy and happy, my mother, 
Cheney said. I left him with Aaliyah in the care of Hera. My mother, Jessica thought. Yes, she has the right to call me that in the formal greeting. She has given me a grandson. I hear a gift of cloth has been sent from Kohanua Siech, Jessica said. It is lovely cloth, Cheney said. Does Aaliyah send a message? No message, but the Siech moves more smoothly now that the people are beginning to accept the miracle of her status. Why does she drag this out so? Cheney wondered. Something was so urgent that they sent a thopter for me. Now we drag through the formalities. We must have some of the new cloth cut into garments for a little later, Jessica said. Whatever you wish, my mother, Cheney said. She lowered her gaze. Is there news of battles? She held her face expressionless that Jessica might not see the betrayal, that this was a question about Paul Muad'Dib. New victories, Jessica said. Raban has sent cautious overtures about a truce. His messengers have been returned without their water. Raban has even lightened the burdens of the people in some of the sink villages, but he is too late. The people know he does it out of fear of us. Thus it goes, as Muad'Dib said, Cheney said. She stared at Jessica, trying to keep her fears to herself. I have spoken his name, but she has not responded. One cannot see emotion in that glazed stone she calls a face, but she is too frozen. Why is she so still? What has happened to my Usul? I wish we were in the south, Jessica said. The oases were so beautiful when we left. Do you not long for the day when the whole land may blossom thus? The land is beautiful, true, Cheney said, but there is much grief in it. Grief is the price of victory, Jessica said. Is she preparing me for grief? Cheney asked herself. She said, there are so many women without men. There was jealousy when it was learned that I'd been summoned north. I summoned you, Jessica said. Cheney felt her heart hammering. She wanted to clap her hands to her ears, fearful of what they might hear. Still, she kept her voice even. The message was signed Muad'Dib. I signed it thus in the presence of his lieutenants, Jessica said. It was a subterfuge of necessity. And Jessica thought, this is a brave woman, my Pauls. She holds to the niceties even when fear is almost overwhelming her. Yes, she may be the one we need now. Only the slightest tone of resignation crept into Chena's voice as she said, Now you may say the thing that must be said. You were needed here to help me revive Paul, Jessica said, and she thought, There, I said it in the precisely correct way, revive. Thus she knows Paul is alive and knows there is peril all in the same word. Chaney took only a moment to calm herself. Then, what is it I may do? She wanted to leap at Jessica, shake her and scream, Take me to him! But she waited silently for the answer. I suspect, Jessica said, that the Harkonnens have managed to send an agent among us to poison Paul. It's the only explanation that seems to fit. A most unusual poison. I've examined his blood in the most subtle ways without detecting it. Cheney thrust herself forward onto her knees. Poison? Is he in pain? Could I— He is unconscious, Jessica said. The processes of his life are so low that they can be detected only with the most refined techniques. I shudder to think what could have happened had I not been the one to discover him. He appears dead, 
to the untrained eye. You have reasons other than courtesy for summoning me, Cheney said. I know you, Reverend Mother. What is it you think I may do that you cannot do? She is brave, lovely, and, ah, so perceptive, Jessica thought. She'd have made a fine Bene Gesserit. Cheney, Jessica said, you may find this difficult to believe, but I do not know precisely why I sent for you. It was an instinct, a basic intuition. The thought came unbidden. Send for Cheney. For the first time, Cheney saw the sadness in Jessica's expression, the unveiled pain modifying the inward stare. I've done all I know to do, Jessica said. That all, it is so far beyond what is usually supposed as all, that you would find difficulty imagining it, yet I failed. The old companion, Halleck, Cheney asked, is it possible he's a traitor? Not Gurney, Jessica said. The two words carried an entire conversation, and Cheney saw the searching, the tests, the memories of old failures that went into this flat denial. Cheney rocked back onto her feet, stood up, smoothed her desert-stained robe. Take me to him, she said. Jessica arose, turned through hangings on the left wall. Cheney followed, found herself in what had been a storeroom, its rock walls concealed now beneath heavy draperies. Paul lay on a field pad against the far wall. A single glow-globe above him illuminated his face. A black robe covered him to the chest, leaving his arms outside it, stretched along his sides. He appeared to be unclothed under the robe. The skin exposed looked waxen, rigid. There was no visible movement to him. Cheney suppressed the desire to dash forward, throw herself across him. She found her thoughts instead going to her son, Leto. And she realized in this instant that Jessica once had faced such a moment. Her man threatened by death, forced in her own mind to consider what might be done to save a young son. The realization formed a sudden bond with the older woman, so that Cheney reached out and clasped Jessica's hand. The answering grip was painful in its intensity. He lives, Jessica said. I assure you, he lives. But the thread of his life is so thin it could easily escape detection. There are some among the leaders already muttering that the mother speaks and not the reverend mother, that my son is truly dead and I do not want to give up his water to the tribe. How long has he been this way? Cheney asked. She disengaged her hand from Jessica's, moved farther into the room. Three weeks, Jessica said. I spent almost a week trying to revive him. There were meetings, arguments, investigations. Then I sent for you. The Fadaikin obey my orders, else I might not have been able to delay thee. She wet her lips with her tongue, watched Cheney cross to Paul. Cheney stood over him now, looking down on the soft beard of youth that framed his face, tracing with her eyes the high brow line, the strong nose, the shuttered eyes the features so peaceful in this rigid repose. How does he take nourishment? Cheney asked. The demands of his flesh are so slight he does not yet need food, Jessica said. How many know of what has happened? Cheney asked. Only his closest advisers, a few of the leaders, the Fadaikin, and, of course, whoever administered the poison. There is no clue to the poisoner? And it's not for want of investigating, Jessica said. What do the Fadaikin say? 
Cheney asked. They believe Paul is in a sacred trance, gathering his holy powers before the final battles. This is a thought I've cultivated. Cheney lowered herself to her knees beside the pad, bent close to Paul's face. She sensed an immediate difference in the air about his face, but it was only the spice, the ubiquitous spice whose odour permeated everything in Fremen life. Still. You were not born to the spice as we were, Cheney said. Have you investigated the possibility that his body has rebelled against too much spice in his diet? Allergy reactions are all negative, Jessica said. She closed her eyes, as much to blot out this scene as because of sudden realization of fatigue. How long have I been without sleep? she asked herself. Too long. When you change the water of life, Cheney said, you do it within yourself by the inward awareness. Have you used this awareness to test his blood? Normal Fremen blood, Jessica said, completely adapted to the diet and the life here. Cheney sat back on her heels, submerging her fears in thought as she studied Paul's face. This was a trick she had learned from watching the Reverend Mothers. Time could be made to serve the mind. One concentrated the entire attention. Presently, Cheney said, Is there a maker here? There are several, Jessica said, with a touch of weariness. We are never without them these days. Each victory requires its blessing, each ceremony before a raid. But Paul Moadib has held himself aloof from these ceremonies, Cheney said. Jessica nodded to herself, remembering her son's ambivalent feelings toward the spice drug and the prescient awareness it precipitated. How did you know this? Jessica asked. It is spoken. Too much is spoken, Jessica said bitterly. Get me the raw water of the maker, Cheney said. Jessica stiffened at the tone of command in Cheney's voice, then observed the intense concentration in the younger woman and said, at once. She went out through the hangings to send a waterman. Cheney sat staring at Paul. If he has tried to do this, she thought, and it's the sort of thing he might try. Jessica knelt beside Cheney, holding out a plain camp ewer. The charged odour of the poison was sharp in Cheney's nostrils. She dipped a finger in the fluid, held the finger close to Paul's nose. The skin along the bridge of his nose wrinkled slightly. Slowly, the nostrils flared. Jessica gasped. Cheney touched the dampened finger to Paul's upper lip. He drew in a long, sobbing breath. What is this? Jessica demanded. Be still, Cheney said. You must convert a small amount of the sacred water, quickly. Without questioning, because she recognized the tone of awareness in Cheney's voice, Jessica lifted the ewer to her mouth, drew in a small sip. Paul's eyes flew open. He stared upward at Cheney. It is not necessary for her to change the water, he said. His voice was weak, but steady. Jessica, a sip of the fluid on her tongue, found her body rallying, converting the poison almost automatically. In the light elevation the ceremony always imparted, she sensed the life glow from Paul, a radiation there registering on her senses. In that instant, she knew. You drank the sacred water, she blurted. One drop of it, Paul said. So small. 
one drop. How could you do such a foolish thing? she demanded. He is your son, Cheney said. Jessica glared at her. A rare smile, warm and full of understanding, touched Paul's lips. Hear, my beloved, he said. Listen to her, mother. She knows. A thing that others can do, he must do, Cheney said. When I had the drop in my mouth, when I felt it and smelled it, when I knew what it was doing to me, then I knew I could do the thing that you have done, he said. Your Bene Gesserit proctors speak of the Kwisatz Haderach, but they cannot begin to guess the many places I have been. In the few minutes I... He broke off, looking at Cheney with a puzzled frown. Cheney, how did you get here? You're supposed to be... Why are you here? He tried to push himself onto his elbows. Cheney pressed him back, gently. Please, my Usul, she said. I feel so weak, he said. His gaze darted around the room. How long have I been here? You've been three weeks in a coma so deep that the spark of life seemed to have fled, Jessica said. But it was... I took it just a moment ago, and a moment for you. Three weeks of fear for me, Jessica said. It was only one drop, but I converted it, Paul said. I changed the water of life. And before Cheney or Jessica could stop him, he dipped his hand into the ewer they had placed on the floor beside him, and he brought the dripping hand to his mouth, swallowed the palm-cupped liquid. Paul! Jessica screamed. He grabbed her hand, faced her with a death's head grin, and he sent his awareness surging over her. The rapport was not as tender, not as sharing, not as encompassing as it had been with Aaliyah and with the old reverend mother in the cavern, but it was a rapport, a sense-sharing of the entire being. It shook her, weakened her, and she cowered in her mind, fearful of him. Aloud, he said, you speak of a place where you cannot enter, this place which the Reverend Mother cannot face. Show it to me. She shook her head, terrified by the very thought. Show it to me, he commanded. No! But she could not escape him. Bludgeoned by the terrible force of him, she closed her eyes and focused inward the direction that is dark. Paul's consciousness flowed through and around her and into the darkness. She glimpsed the place dimly before her mind blanked itself away from the terror. Without knowing why, her whole being trembled at what she had seen, a region where a wind blew and sparks glared, where rings of light expanded and contracted, where rows of tumescent white shapes flowed over and under and around the lights, driven by darkness and a wind out of nowhere. Presently she opened her eyes, saw Paul staring up at her, he still held her hand, but the terrible rapport was gone. She quieted her trembling. Paul released her hand. It was as though some crutch had been removed. She staggered up and back, would have fallen had not Cheney jumped to support her. Reverend Mother, Cheney said, what is wrong? Tired, Jessica whispered. So tired. Here, Cheney said, sit here. She helped Jessica to a cushion against the wall. The strong young arms felt so good to Jessica. She clung to Cheney. He has, in truth, seen the water of life? Cheney asked. She disengaged herself from Jessica's grip. 
He has seen, Jessica whispered. Her mind still rolled and surged from the contact. It was like stepping to solid land after weeks on a heaving sea. She sensed the old reverend mother within her, and all the others awakened and questioning. What was that? What happened? Where was that place? Through it all threaded the realization that her son was the Kwisatz Haderach, the one who could be many places at once. He was the fact out of the Bene Gesserit dream, and the fact gave her no peace. What happened? Cheney demanded. Jessica shook her head. Paul said, There is in each of us an ancient force that takes, and an ancient force that gives. A man finds little difficulty facing that place within himself where the taking force dwells. But it's almost impossible for him to see into the giving force without changing into something other than man. For a woman, the situation is reversed. Jessica looked up, found Cheney was staring at her while listening to Paul. Do you understand me, mother? Paul asked. She could only nod. These things are so ancient within us, Paul said, that they're ground into each separate cell of our bodies. We're shaped by such forces. You can say to yourself, yes, I see how such a thing may be. But when you look inward and confront the raw force of your own life unshielded, you see your peril. You see that this could overwhelm you. The greatest peril to the giver is the force that takes. The greatest peril to the taker is the force that gives. It's as easy to be overwhelmed by giving as by taking. And you, my son? Jessica asked. Are you one who gives, or one who takes? I'm at the fulcrum, he said. I cannot give without taking, and I cannot take without... He broke off, looking to the wall at his right. Cheney felt a draught against her cheek, turned to see the hangings close. It was Othheim, Paul said. He was listening. Accepting the words, Cheney was touched by some of the prescience that haunted Paul, and she knew a thing yet to be as though it already had occurred. Othheim would speak of what he had seen and heard. Others would spread the story until it was a fire over the land. Paul Muad'Dib is not as other men, they would say. There can be no more doubt. He is a man, yet he sees through to the water of life in the way of a reverend mother. He is indeed the Lisan al-Gaib. You have seen the future, Paul, Jessica said. Will you say what you've seen? Not the future, he said. I've seen the now. He forced himself to a sitting position, waved Cheney aside as she moved to help him. The space above Arrakis is filled with the ships of the Guild. Jessica trembled at the certainty in his voice. The Padishah Emperor himself is there, Paul said. He looked at the rock ceiling of his cell, with his favourite truth-sayer and five legions of Sardukah. The old Baron Vladimir Harkonnen is there, with Thufir Hawat beside him, and seven ships jammed with every conscript he could muster. Every great house has its raiders above us, waiting. Cheney shook her head, unable to look away from Paul. His strangeness, the flat tone of voice, the way he looked through her, filled her with awe. Jessica tried to swallow in a dry throat, said, For what are they waiting? Paul looked at her. For the guild's permission to land. 
The guild will strand on Arrakis any force that lands without permission. The guild's protecting us? Jessica asked. Protecting us? The guild itself caused this by spreading tales about what we do here and by reducing troop transport fares to a point where even the poorest houses are up there now waiting to loot us. Jessica noted the lack of bitterness in his tone, wondered at it. She couldn't doubt his words. They had that same intensity she'd seen in him the night he'd revealed the path of the future that had taken them among the Fremen. Paul took a deep breath, said, Mother, you must change a quantity of the water for us. We need the catalyst. Cheney, have a scout force sent out to find a pre-spice mass. If we plant a quantity of the water of life above a pre-spice mass, do you know what will happen? Jessica weighed his words, suddenly saw through his meaning. Paul, she gasped. The water of death, he said. It'll be a chain reaction. He pointed to the floor, spreading death among the little makers, killing a vector of the life cycle that includes the spice and the makers. Arrakis will become a true desolation without spice or maker. Cheney put a hand to her mouth shocked to numb silence by the blasphemy pouring from Paul's lips. He who can destroy a thing has the real control of it, Paul said. We can destroy the spice. What stays the guild's hand? Jessica whispered. They are searching for me, Paul said. Think of that. The finest guild navigators, men who can quest ahead through time to find the safest course for the fastest highliners, all of them seeking me and unable to find me. How they tremble. They know I have their secret here. Paul held out his cupped hand. Without the spice, they're blind. Cheney found her voice. You said you see them now. Paul lay back searching the spread-out present, its limits extended into the future and into the past, holding onto the awareness with difficulty as the spice illumination began to fade. Go do as I commanded, he said. The future's becoming as muddled for the guild as it is for me. The lines of vision are narrowing. Everything focuses here where the spice is, where they've dared not interfere before, because to interfere was to lose what they must have. But now they're desperate. All paths lead into darkness. And that day dawned when Arrakis lay at the hub of the universe with the wheel poised to spin. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. Will you look at that thing? Stilgar whispered. Paul lay beside him in a slit of rock high on the shield wall rim, eye fixed to the collector of a Fremen telescope. The oil lens was focused on a starship lighter exposed by dawn in the basin below them. The tall eastern face of the ship glistened in the flat light of the sun, but the shadow side still showed yellow portholes from glow globes of the night. Beyond the ship, the city of Arakeen lay cold and gleaming in the light of the northern sun. It wasn't the lighter that excited Stilgar's awe, Paul knew, but the construction for which the lighter was only the center post. A single metal hutment, many stories tall, reached out in a thousand-meter circle from the base of the lighter. 
a tent composed of interlocking metal leaves, the temporary lodging place for five legions of Sardaukar and his imperial majesty, the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. From his position squatting at Paul's left, Gurney Halleck said, I count nine levels to it. Must be quite a few Sardaukar in there. Five legions, Paul said. It grows light, Stilgar hissed. We like it not, you're exposing yourself, Muad'Dib. Let us go back into the rocks now. I'm perfectly safe here, Paul said. That ship mounts projectile weapons, Gurney said. They believe us protected by shields, Paul said. They wouldn't waste a shot on an unidentified trio even if they saw us. Paul swung the telescope to scan the far wall of the basin, seeing the pock-marked cliffs, the slides that marked the tombs of so many of his father's troopers. And he had a momentary sense of the fitness of things that the shades of those men should look down on this moment. The Harkonnen forts and towns across the shielded lands lay in Fremen hands, or cut away from their source like stalks severed from a plant and left to wither. Only this basin and its city remained to the enemy. They might try a sortie by Thopter, Stilgar said, if they see us. Let them, Paul said. We've Thopters to burn today, and we know a storm is coming. He swung the telescope to the far side of the Arikeen landing field now, to the Harkonnen frigates lined up there with a Chome Company banner waving gently from its staff on the ground beneath them and he thought of the desperation that had forced the guild to permit these two groups to land while all the others were held in reserve. The guild was like a man testing the sand with his toe to gauge its temperature before erecting a tent. "'Is there anything new to see from here?' Gurney asked. "'We should be getting under cover. The storm is coming.' Paul returned his attention on the giant hutment. "'They've even brought their women,' he said, "'and lackeys, and servants.' Ah, my dear Emperor, how confident you are. Men are coming up the secret way, Stilgar said. It may be Othheim and Korpa returning. All right still, Paul said. We'll go back. But he took one final look around through the telescope, studying the plain with its tall ships, the gleaming metal hutment, the silent city, the frigates of the Harkonnen mercenaries. Then he slid backward around a scarp of rock. His place at the telescope was taken by a Fadaikin guardsman. Paul emerged into a shallow depression in the shield wall's surface. It was a place about thirty metres in diameter and some three metres deep, a natural feature of the rock that the Fremen had hidden beneath a translucent camouflage cover. Communications equipment was clustered around a hole in the wall to the right. Fadaikin guards deployed through the depression waited for Muad'Dib's command to attack. Two men emerged from the hole by the communications equipment, spoke to the guards there. Paul glanced at Stilgar and nodded in the direction of the two men. Get their reports, Still. Stilgar moved to obey. Paul crouched with his back to the rock, stretching his muscles. Straightened. He saw Stilgar sending the two men back into that dark hole in the rock, thought about the long climb down that narrow man-made tunnel to the floor of the basin. Stilgar crossed to Paul. What was so important that they couldn't send a Cielago with the message? Paul asked. They're saving their birds for the battle, Stilgar said. He glanced at the communications equipment, back to Paul. Even with a tight beam, it is wrong to use those things, Muad'Dib. 
They can find you by taking a bearing on its emission. They'll soon be too busy to find me, Paul said. What did the men report? Our pet Sadoka have been released near Old Gap, low on the rim, and are on their way to their master. The rocket launchers and other projectile weapons are in place. The people are deployed as you ordered. It was all routine. Paul glanced across the shallow bowl, studying his men in the filtered light admitted by the camouflage cover. He felt time creeping like an insect working its way across an exposed rock. It'll take our Sardica a little time afoot before they can signal a troop carrier, Paul said. They are being watched? They are being watched, Stilgar said. Beside Paul, Gurney Halleck cleared his throat. Hadn't we best be getting to a place of safety? There is no such place, Paul said. Is the weather report still favourable? A great-grandmother of a storm coming, Stilgar said. Can you not feel it, Wadib? The air does feel chancy, Paul agreed. But I like the certainty of polling the weather. The storm will be here in the hour, Stilgar said. He nodded toward the gap that looked out on the Emperor's hutment and on the Harkonnen frigates. They know it there, too. Not a thopter in the sky. Everything pulled in and tied down. They've had a report on the weather from their friends in space. Any more probing sorties? Paul asked. Nothing since the landing last night, Stilgar said. They know we're here. I think now they wait to choose their own time. We choose the time, Paul said. Gurney glanced upward, growled, if they led us. That fleet'll stay in space, Paul said. Gurney shook his head. They have no choice, Paul said. We can destroy the spice. The guild dares not risk that. Desperate people are the most dangerous, Gurney said. Are we not desperate? Stilgar asked. Gurney scowled at him. You haven't lived with a Fremen dream, Paul cautioned. Still is thinking of all the water we've spent on bribes. The years of waiting we've added before Arrakis can bloom. He's not... Ah! Gurney scowled. Why is he so gloomy? Stilgar asked. He's always gloomy before a battle, Paul said. It's the only form of good humour Gurney allows himself. A slow, wolfish grin spread across Gurney's face, the teeth showing white above the chip cut of his still-suit. It glooms me much to think on all the poor Harkonnen souls we'll dispatch unshriven, he said. Stilgar chuckled. He talks like a Vodikin. Gurney was born a death commando, Paul said. And he thought, yes, let them occupy their minds with small talk before we test ourselves against that force on the plain. He looked to the gap in the rock wall and back to Gurney, found that the troubadour warrior had resumed a brooding scowl. Worry saps the strength, Paul murmured. You told me that once, Gurney. My duke, Gurney said, my chief worry is the atomics. If you use them to blast a hole in the shield wall, those people up there won't use atomics against us, Paul said. They don't dare, for the same reason that they cannot risk our destroying the source of the spice. But the injunction against the injunction, Paul barked. It's fear, not the injunction that keeps the houses from hurling atomics against each other. The language of the Great Convention is clear enough. Use of atomics against humans shall be cause for planetary obliteration. We are going to blast the shield wall, not humans. It's too fine a point, Gurney said. The hair splitters up there will welcome any point, Paul said. Let's talk no more about it. 
He turned away, wishing he actually felt that confident. Presently he said, What about the city people? Are they in position yet? Yes, Stilgar muttered. Paul looked at him. What's eating you? I never knew the city man could be trusted completely, Stilgar said. I was a city man myself once, Paul said. Stilgar stiffened. His face grew dark with blood. Wadib knows I did not mean. I know what you meant still. But the test of a man isn't what you think he'll do, it's what he actually does. These city people have Fremen blood. It's just that they haven't yet learned how to escape their bondage. We'll teach them. Stilgar nodded, spoke in a rueful tone. The habits of a lifetime, Wadib. On the funeral plane we learn to despise the men of the communities. Paul glanced at Gurney, saw him studying Stilgar. Tell us, Gurney, why were the city folk down there driven from their homes by the Sarduka? An old trick, my duke. They thought to burden us with refugees. It's been so long since guerrillas were effective that the mighty have forgotten how to fight them, Paul said. The Sarduka have played into our hands. They grabbed some city women for their sport, decorated their battle standards with the heads of the men who objected, and they've built up a fever of hate among people who otherwise would have looked on the coming battle as no more than a great inconvenience, and the possibility of exchanging one set of masters for another. The Sarduka recruit for us, Stilgar. The city people do seem eager, Stilgar said. Their hate is fresh and clear, Paul said. That's why we use them as shock troops. The slaughter among them will be fearful, Gurney said. Stilgar nodded agreement. They were told the odds, Paul said. They know every Sardica they kill will be one less for us. You see, gentlemen, they have something to die for. They discovered they're a people. They're awakening. A muttered exclamation came from the watcher at the telescope. Paul moved to the rock slit, asked, What is it out there? A great commotion, Wadib, the watcher hissed. At that monstrous metal tent, a surface car came from Rimwall West, and it was like a hawk into a nest of rock partridge. Our captive Sardaukar have arrived, Paul said. They've a shield around the entire landing field now, the watcher said. I can see the air dancing even to the edge of the storage yard where they kept the spice. Now they know who it is they fight, Gurney said. Let the Harkonnen beasts tremble and fret themselves that an Atreides yet lives. Paul spoke to the Fadaikin at the telescope. Watch the flagpole atop the Emperor's ship. If my flag is raised there, it will not be, Gurney said. Paul saw the puzzled frown on Stilgar's face, said, If the Emperor recognized my claim, he'll signal by restoring the Atreides' flag to Arrakis. We'll use the second plan, then, move only against the Harkonnens. The Sardica will stand aside and let us settle the issue between ourselves. I've no experience with these off-world things, Stilgar said. I've heard of them, but it seems unlikely the— You don't need experience to know what they'll do, Gurney said. They're sending a new flag up on the tall ship, the Watcher said. The flag is yellow, with a black and red circle in the centre. There's a subtle piece of business, Paul said. The Chome Company flag. It's the same as the flag at the other ships, the Fadaikin guard said. I don't understand, Stilgar said. A subtle piece of business indeed, Gurney said. 
Had he sent up the Atreides banner, he'd have had to live by what that meant. Too many observers about. He could have signalled with a Harkonnen flag on his staff, a flat declaration that'd have been. But no, he sends up the chome rag. He's telling the people up there, Gurney pointed towards space, where the prophet is. He's saying he doesn't care if it's an Atreides here or not. How long till the storm strikes the shield wall? Paul asked. Stilgar turned away, consulted one of the Fadaikin in the bowl. Presently he returned, said, Very soon, Wadib, sooner than we expected. It's a great, great grandmother of a storm, perhaps even more than you wished. It's my storm, Paul said, and saw the silent awe on the faces of the Fadaikin who heard him. Though it shook the entire world, it could not be more than I wished. Will it strike the shield wall full on? Close enough to make no difference, Stilgar said. A courier crossed from the hole that led down into the basin, said, The Sardukar and Harkonnen patrols are pulling back, Muad'Dib. They expect the storm to spill too much sand into the basin for good visibility, Stilgar said. They think we'll be in the same fix. Tell our gunners to set their sights well before visibility drops, Paul said. They must knock the nose off every one of those ships as soon as the storm has destroyed the shields. He stepped to the wall of the bowl, pulled back a fold of the camouflage cover and looked up at the sky. The horsetail twistings of blow sand could be seen against the dark of the sky. Paul restored the cover, said, Start sending our men down still. Will you not go with us? Stilgar asked. I'll wait here a bit with the Fadaikin, Paul said. Stilgar gave a knowing shrug toward Gurney, moved to the hole in the rock wall, was lost in its shadows. The trigger that blasts the shield wall aside, that I leave in your hands, Gurney, Paul said. You will do it? I'll do it. Paul gestured to a Fadaikin lieutenant, said, Othheim, start moving the Czech patrols out of the blast area. They must be out of there before the storm strikes. The man bowed, followed Stilgar. Gurney leaned into the rock slit, spoke to the man at the telescope. Keep your attention on the south wall. It'll be completely undefended until we blow it. Dispatch a Cielago with a time signal, Paul ordered. Some ground cars are moving toward the south wall, the man at the telescope said. Some are using projectile weapons, testing. Our people are using body shields as you commanded. The ground cars have stopped. In the abrupt silence, Paul heard the wind devils playing overhead, the front of the storm. Sand began to drift down into their bowl through gaps in the cover. A burst of wind caught the cover, whipped it away. Paul motioned his Fadaikin to take shelter, crossed to the men at the communications equipment near the tunnel mouth. Gurney stayed beside him. Paul crouched over the signalmen. One said, A great, great, great grandmother of a storm, Muad'Dib. Paul glanced up at the darkening sky, said, Gurney! Have the South Wall observers pulled out? He had to repeat his order, shouting above the growing noise of the storm. Gurney turned to obey. Paul fastened his face filter, tightened the still-suit hood. Gurney returned. Paul touched his shoulder, pointed to the blast trigger set into the tunnel mouth beyond the signalmen. Gurney went into the tunnel, stopped there, one hand at the trigger, his gaze on Paul. We are getting no messages the signalman beside Paul said. Much static. Paul nodded, 
kept his eye on the time-standard dial in front of the signalman. Presently, Paul looked at Gurney, raised a hand, returned his attention to the dial. The time-counter crawled around its final circuit. Now! Paul shouted and dropped his hand. Gurney depressed the blast trigger. It seemed that a full second passed before they felt the ground beneath them ripple and shake. A rumbling sound was added to the storm's roar. The Fadaikin watcher from the telescope appeared beside Paul. The telescope clutched under one arm. The shield wall is breached, Muad'Dib, he shouted. The storm is on them, and our gunners already are firing. Paul thought of the storm sweeping across the basin, the static charge within the wall of sand that destroyed every shield barrier in the enemy camp. This storm, someone shouted. We must get under cover, Muad'Dib. Paul came to his senses, feeling the sand needles sting his exposed cheeks. We are committed, he thought. He put an arm around the signalman's shoulder, said, Leave the equipment, there's more in the tunnel. He felt himself being pulled away, for Daikin pressed around him to protect him. They squeezed into the tunnel mouth, feeling its comparative silence, turned a corner into a small chamber with glow globes overhead and another tunnel opening beyond. Another signalman sat there at his equipment. Much static, the man said. A swirl of sand filled the air around them. Seal off this tunnel, Paul shouted. A sudden pressure of stillness showed that his command had been obeyed. Is the way down to the basin still open? Paul asked. A Fadaikin went to look, returned, said, The explosion caused a little rock to fall, but the engineers say it is still open. They're cleaning up with laser beams. Tell them to use their hands, Paul barked. There are shields active down there. They are being careful, Muad'Dib, the man said. But he turned to obey. The signalmen from outside pressed past them, carrying their equipment. I told those men to leave their equipment, Paul said. Fremen do not like to abandon equipment, Muad'Dib, one of his Vadaikin chided. Men are more important than equipment now, Paul said. We'll have more equipment than we can use soon, or have no need for any equipment. Gurney Halleck came up beside him, said, I heard them say the way down is open. We're very close to the surface here, my lord. Should the Harkonnens try to retaliate in kind? They're in no position to retaliate, Paul said. They're just now finding out that they have no shields, and are unable to get off Arrakis. The new command post is all prepared, though, my lord, Gurney said. They've no need of me in the command post yet, Paul said. The plan would go ahead without me. We must wait for the... I'm getting a message, Muad'Dib, said the signalman at the communications equipment. The man shook his head, pressed a receiver phone against his ear. Much static! He began scribbling on a pad in front of him, shaking his head, writing, waiting. Paul crossed to the signalman's side. The Fadaikin stepped back, giving him room. He looked down at what the man had written, read, Raid on Siech Tabor, Captives, Aliyah, Families of Dead are they, son of Muad'Dib. Again the signalman shook his head. Paul looked up to see Gurney staring at him. The message is garbled, Gurney said. The static. You don't know that. My son is dead, Paul said, and knew as he spoke that it was true. My son is dead, and Aliyah is a captive. Hostage. He felt emptied, a shell without emotions. Everything he touched brought death and grief, and it was like a disease that could spread across the universe. 
He could feel the old man wisdom, the accumulation out of the experiences from countless possible lives. Something seemed to chuckle and rub its hands within him. And Paul thought, how little the universe knows about the nature of real cruelty. And Muad'Dib stood before them, and he said, Though we deem the captive dead, yet does she live. For her seed is my seed, and her voice is my voice. And she sees unto the farthest reaches of possibility. Yea, unto the veil of the unknowable does she see because of me. From Arrakis Awakening, by the Princess Irulan. The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen stood with eyes downcast in the Imperial Audience Chamber, the oval Selamlik within the Padisha Emperor's hutment. With covert glances, the Baron had studied the metal-walled room and its occupants, the Nogurs, the pages, the guards, the troop of House Sauduka drawn up around the walls, standing at ease there beneath the bloody and tattered captured battle flags that were the room's only decoration. Voices sounded from the right of the chamber, echoing out of a high passage. Make way! Make way for the royal person! The Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV came out of the passage into the audience chamber, followed by his suite. He stood waiting while his throne was brought, ignoring the Baron, seemingly ignoring every person in the room. The Baron found that he could not ignore the royal person, and studied the Emperor for a sign, any clue to the purpose of this audience. The Emperor stood poised, waiting, a slim, elegant figure in a grey Sardauka uniform with silver and gold trim. His thin face and cold eyes reminded the Baron of the Duke Leto, long dead. There was that same look of the predatory bird. But the Emperor's hair was red, not black, and most of that hair was concealed by a Berseg's ebon helmet with the imperial crest in gold upon its crown. Pages brought the throne. It was a massive chair carved from a single piece of Hegel quartz, blue-green translucency shot through with streaks of yellow fire. They placed it on the dais, and the emperor mounted, seated himself. An old woman in a black abba robe with hood drawn down over her forehead detached herself from the emperor's suite, took up station behind the throne, one scrawny hand resting on the quartz back. Her face peered out of the hood like a witch caricature, sunken cheeks and eyes, an overlong nose, skin mottled and with protruding veins. The Baron stilled his trembling at sight of her. The presence of the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, the Emperor's truth-sayer, betrayed the importance of this audience. The Baron looked away from her, studied the suite for a clue. There were two of the Guild agents, one tall and fat, one short and fat, both with bland grey eyes. And among the lackeys stood one of the Emperor's daughters, the Princess Yurulan, a woman they said was being trained in the deepest of the Bene Gesserit ways, destined to be a reverend mother. She was tall, blonde, face of chiselled beauty, green eyes that looked past and through him. My dear Baron, the Emperor had deigned to notice him. The voice was baritone and with exquisite control. It managed to dismiss him while greeting him. The Baron bowed low, advanced to the required position ten paces from the dais. I came at your summons, Majesty. Summons? 
the old witch cackled. Now, reverend mother, the emperor chided, but he smiled at the baron's discomfiture, said, First, you will tell me where you've sent your minion, Thufir Howart. The baron darted his gaze left and right, reviled himself for coming here without his own guards, not that they'd be much use against Sardauga, still. Well, the emperor said, he has been gone these five days, majesty. The baron shot a glance at the guild agents, back to the emperor. He was to land at a smuggler base, or attempt infiltrating the camp of the Fremen fanatic, this Muad'Dib. Incredible, the emperor said. One of the witch's claw-like hands tapped the emperor's shoulder. She leaned forward, whispered in his ear. The emperor nodded, said, Five days, baron. Tell me, why aren't you worried about his absence? But I am worried, majesty. The emperor continued to stare at him, waiting. The reverend mother emitted a cackling laugh. What I mean, majesty, the baron said, is that Howard will be dead within another few hours anyway. And he explained about the latent poison and need for an antidote. How clever of you, baron, the emperor said. And where are your nephews, Raban, and the young fade Rauther? The storm comes, majesty. I sent them to inspect our perimeter, lest the Fremen attack under cover of the sand. Perimeter, the emperor said. The word came out as though it puckered his mouth. The storm won't be much here in the basin, and that Fremen rabble won't attack while I'm here with five legions of Sardauga. Surely not, majesty, the baron said. But error on the side of caution cannot be censured. Ah, the emperor said. Censure, that I'm not to speak of how much time this Arrakis nonsense has taken from me, nor the Chome Company profits pouring down this rat hole, nor the court functions and affairs of state I've had to delay, even cancel because of this stupid affair. The Baron lowered his gaze, frightened by the imperial anger. The delicacy of his position here, alone and dependent upon the convention and the dictum familia of the great houses, fretted him. Does he mean to kill me? the baron asked himself. He couldn't, not with the other great houses waiting up there, aching for any excuse to gain from this upset on Arrakis. Have you taken hostages? the emperor asked. It's useless, majesty. The baron said, these mad Fremen hold a burial ceremony for every captive and act as though such a one were already dead. So, the emperor said, and the baron waited, glancing left and right at the metal walls of the Salamlik, thinking of the monstrous fan-metal tent around him. Such unlimited wealth it represented that even the baron was awed. He brings pages, the baron thought, and useless court lackeys. His women and their companions, hairdressers, designers, everything, all the fringe parasites of the court, all here, fawning, slyly plotting, roughing it with the emperor, here to watch him put an end to this affair, to make epigrams over the battles and idolize the wounded. Perhaps you've never sought the right kind of hostages, the emperor said. He knows something, the baron thought. Fear sat like a stone in his stomach until he could hardly bear the thought of eating. 
yet the feeling was like hunger, and he poised himself several times in his suspenses on the point of ordering food brought to him. But there was no one here to obey his summons. Do you have any idea who this Muad'Dib could be? the emperor asked. One of the Ummah, surely, the baron said. A Fremen fanatic, a religious adventurer. They crop up regularly on the fringes of civilization. Your majesty knows this. The emperor glanced at his truth-sayer, turned back to scowl at the baron. And you have no other knowledge of this Muad'Dib? A madman, the baron said. But all Fremen are a little mad. Mad? His people scream his name as they leap into battle. The women throw their babies at us and hurl themselves onto our knives to open a wedge for their men to attack us. They have no... no... decency. As bad as that, the emperor murmured, and his tone of derision did not escape the baron. Tell me, my dear baron, have you investigated the southern polar regions of Arrakis? The baron stared up at the emperor, shocked by the change of subject. But, well, you know, your majesty, the entire region is uninhabitable, open to wind and worm. There's not even any spice in those latitudes. You had no reports from spice lighters that patches of greenery appear there? There have always been such reports. Some were investigated long ago. A few plants were seen. Many thopters were lost. Much too costly, your majesty. It's a place where men cannot survive for long. So, the emperor said. He snapped his fingers and a door opened at his left behind the throne. Through the door came two Sardukar, herding a girl child who appeared to be about four years old. She wore a black abba, the hood thrown back to reveal the attachments of a still suit hanging free at her throat. Her eyes were Fremen blue, staring out of a soft, round face. She appeared completely unafraid, and there was a look to her stare that made the Baron feel uneasy for no reason he could explain. Even the old Bene Gesserit truth-sayer drew back as the child passed and made a warding sign in her direction. The old witch obviously was shaken by the child's presence. The Emperor cleared his throat to speak, but the child spoke first. A thin voice with traces of a soft palate lisp, but clear nonetheless. So, here he is, she said. She advanced to the edge of the dais. He doesn't appear much, does he? One frightened old fat man, too weak to support his own flesh, without the help of suspensus. It was such a totally unexpected statement from the mouth of a child that the baron stared at her, speechless in spite of his anger. Is it a midget? he asked himself. My dear baron, the emperor said, become acquainted with the sister of Muad'Dib. The sister? The baron shifted his attention to the emperor. I do not understand. I, too, sometimes err on the side of caution, the emperor said. It has been reported to me that your uninhabited south polar regions exhibit evidence of human activity. But that's impossible, the baron protested. The worms! There's sand clear to the— These people seem able to avoid the worms, the emperor said. The child sat down on the dais beside the throne, dangled her feet over the edge, kicking them. There was such an air of sureness in the way she appraised her surroundings. 
The Baron stared at the kicking feet, the way they moved the black robe, the wink of sandals beneath the fabric. Unfortunately, the Emperor said, I only sent in five troop carriers with a light attack force to pick up prisoners for questioning. We barely got away with three prisoners and one carrier. Mind you, Baron, my Sardauka were almost overwhelmed by a force composed mostly of women, children, and old men. This child here was in command of one of the attacking groups. You see, Your Majesty, the Baron said, you see how they are. I allowed myself to be captured, the child said. I did not want to face my brother and have to tell him that his son had been killed. Only a handful of our men got away, the Emperor said. Got away, you hear that? We'd have had them too, the child said, except for the flames. My Sadoka used the attitudinal jets on their carrier as flamethrowers, the Emperor said. A move of desperation and the only thing that got them away with their three prisoners. Mark that, my dear Baron. Sardaka forced to retreat in confusion from women and children and old men. We must attack in force, the Baron rasped. We must destroy every last vestige of silence, the Emperor roared. He pushed himself forward on his throne. Do not abuse my intelligence any longer. You stand there in your foolish innocence and... Majesty, the old truth-sayer said. He waved her to silence. You say you don't know about the activity we found, nor the fighting qualities of these superb people. The emperor lifted himself half off his throne. What do you take me for, baron? The baron took two backward steps, thinking, It was Raban. He has done this to me. Raban has... And this fake dispute with Duke Leto. The emperor purred, sitting back into his throne. How beautifully you maneuvered it. Majesty, the baron pleaded. What are you... Silence! The old Bene Gesserit put a hand on the emperor's shoulder, leaned close to whisper in his ear. The child, seated on the dais, stopped kicking her feet, said, Make him afraid some more, Shaddam. I shouldn't enjoy this, but I find the pleasure impossible to suppress. Quiet, child, the emperor said. He leaned forward, put a hand on her head, stared at the baron. Is it possible, baron? Could you be as simple-minded as my truth-sayer suggests? Do you not recognize this, child? Daughter of your ally, Duke Leto? My father was never his ally, the child said. My father is dead, and this old Harkonnen beast has never seen me before. The Baron was reduced to stupefied glaring. When he found his voice, it was only to rasp. Who? I am Alia, daughter of Duke Leto and the Lady Jessica, sister of Duke Paul Muad'Dib the child said. She pushed herself off the dais, dropped to the floor of the audience chamber. My brother has promised to have your head atop his battle standard, and I think he shall. Be hush, child, the emperor said, and he sank back into his throne, hand to chin, studying the baron. I do not take the emperor's orders, Alia said. She turned, looked up at the old reverend mother. She knows. The emperor glanced up at his truth-sayer. What does she mean? That child is an abomination, 
the old woman said. Her mother deserves a punishment greater than anything in history. Death, it cannot come too quickly for that child or for the one who spawned her. The old woman pointed a finger at Aliyah. Get out of my mind! T.P., the emperor whispered. He snapped his attention back to Aliyah. By the great mother! You don't understand, majesty, the old woman said. Not telepathy. She's in my mind. She's like the ones before me, the ones who gave me their memories. She stands in my mind. She cannot be there, but she is. What others? the emperor demanded. What's this nonsense? The old woman straightened, lowered her pointing hand. I've said too much, but the fact remains that this child who is not a child must be destroyed. Long were we warned against such a one and how to prevent such a birth. But one of our own has betrayed us. You babble, old woman, Aaliyah said. You don't know how it was, yet you rattle on like a purblind fool. Aaliyah closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and held it. The old reverend mother groaned and staggered. Aaliyah opened her eyes. That is how it was, she said. A cosmic accident, and you played your part in it. The Reverend Mother held out both hands, palms pushing the air toward Aaliyah. What is happening here? the Emperor demanded. Child, can you truly project your thoughts into the mind of another? That's not how it is at all, Aaliyah said. Unless I'm born as you, I cannot think as you. Kill her, the old woman muttered, and clutched the back of the throne for support. Kill her! The sunken old eyes glared at Aaliyah. Silence, the emperor said, and he studied Aaliyah. Child, can you communicate with your brother? My brother knows I'm here, Aaliyah said. Can you tell him to surrender as the price of your life? Aaliyah smiled up at him with clear innocence. I shall not do that, she said. The baron stumbled forward to stand beside Aaliyah. Majesty! he pleaded. I knew nothing of... Interrupt me once more, Baron, the Emperor said, and you will lose the powers of interruption forever. He kept his attention focused on Aaliyah, studying her through slitted lids. You will not, eh? Can you read in my mind what I'll do if you disobey me? I've already said I cannot read minds, she said, but one doesn't need telepathy to read your intentions. The Emperor scowled. Child, your cause is hopeless. I have but to rally my forces and reduce this planet to... It's not that simple, Aaliyah said. She looked at the two guildsmen. Ask them. It is not wise to go against my desires, the Emperor said. You should not deny me the least thing. My brother comes now, Aaliyah said. Even an emperor may tremble before Muad'Dib, for he has the strength of righteousness and heaven smiles upon him. The emperor surged to his feet. This play has gone far enough. I will take your brother and this planet and grind them to... The room rumbled and shook around them. There came a sudden cascade of sand behind the throne where the hutment was coupled to the emperor's ship. The abrupt flicker, tightening of skin pressure told of a wide-area shield being activated. I told you, Aaliyah said, my brother comes.
The emperor stood in front of his throne, right hand pressed to right ear, the servo receiver there chattering its report on the situation. The baron moved two steps behind Alia. Sardaukar were leaping to positions at the doors. We will fall back into space and reform, the emperor said. Baron, my apologies. These madmen are attacking under cover of the storm. We will show them an emperor's wrath then. He pointed at Alia. Give her body to the storm. As he spoke, Alia fled backward, feigning terror. Let the storm have what it can take, she screamed, and she backed into the baron's arms. I have her majesty, the baron shouted. Shall I dispatch her now? He hurled her to the floor, clutched his left arm. I'm sorry, grandfather, Alia said. You've met the Atreides Gomjabar. She got to her feet, dropped a dark needle from her hand. The baron fell back, his eyes bulged as he stared at a red slash on his left palm. You! You! He rolled sideways in his suspensers, a sagging mass of flesh supported inches off the floor, with head lolling and mouth hanging open. These people are insane, the emperor snarled. Quick, into the ship, we'll purge this planet of every... Something sparkled to his left. A roll of ball lightning bounced away from the wall there, crackled as it touched the metal floor. The smell of burned insulation swept through the Selamleek. The shield! One of the Sardauka officers shouted. The outer shield is down! They... His words were drowned in a metallic roaring as the ship wall behind the Emperor trembled and rocked. They've shot the nose off our ship! Someone called. Dust boiled through the room. Under its cover, Alia leaped up, ran toward the outer door. The emperor whirled, motioned his people into an emergency door that swung open in the ship's side behind the throne. He flashed a hand signal to a Sardaka officer leaping through the dust haze. We will make our stand here, the emperor ordered. Another crash shook the hutment. The double doors banged open at the far side of the chamber, admitting wind-blown sand and the sound of shouting. A small, black-robed figure could be seen momentarily against the light, Alia darting out to find a knife and, as befitted her Fremen training, to kill Harkonnen and Sardaka wounded. House Sardaka charged through a greened-yellow haze toward the opening, weapons ready, forming an arc there to protect the Emperor's retreat. "'Save yourself, sir!' the Sardaka officer shouted. "'Into the ship!' But the Emperor stood alone now, on his dais, pointing toward the doors. A forty-metre section of the hutment had been blasted away there, and the Selamleek's doors opened now onto drifting sand. A dust cloud hung low over the outside world, blowing from pastel distances. Static lightning crackled from the cloud, and the spark flashes of shields being shorted out by the storm's charge could be seen through the haze. The plane surged with figures in combat, Sardaukar and leaping, gyrating, robed men who seemed to come down out of the storm. All this was as a frame for the target of the Emperor's pointing hand. Out of the sand haze came an orderly mass of flashing shapes, great rising curves with crystal spokes that resolved into the gaping mouths of sandworms, a massed wall of them, each with troops of Fremen riding to the attack. They came in a hissing wedge, robes whipping in the wind as they cut through the melee on the plain. Onward, 
Toward the emperor's hutment they came, while the house Sardica stood awed, for the first time in their history, by an onslaught their minds found difficult to accept. But the figures leaping from the worm backs were men, and the blades flashing in that ominous yellow light were a thing the Sardica had been trained to face. They threw themselves into combat, and it was man to man on the plain of Arakeen while a picked Sardica bodyguard pressed the emperor back into the ship, sealed the door on him, and prepared to die at the door as part of his shield. In the shock of comparative silence within the ship, the emperor stared at the wide-eyed faces of his suite, seeing his oldest daughter with a flush of exertion on her cheeks, the old truth-sayer standing like a black shadow with her hood pulled about her face, finding at last the faces he sought, the two guildsmen. They wore the guild grey, unadorned, and it seemed to fit the calm they maintained despite the high emotions around them. The taller of the two, though, held a hand to his left eye. As the emperor watched, someone jostled the guildsman's arm, the hand moved, and the eye was revealed. The man had lost one of his masking contact lenses, and the eye stared out a total blue, so dark as to be almost black. The smaller of the pair elbowed his way a step nearer the emperor, said, We cannot know how it will go. And the taller companion, hand restored to eye, added in a cold voice, But this Muad'Dib cannot know either. The words shocked the emperor out of his daze. He checked the scorn on his tongue by a visible effort, because it did not take a guild navigator's single-minded focus on the main chance to see the immediate future out on that plane. Were these two so dependent upon their faculty that they had lost the use of their eyes and their reason, he wondered. Reverend Mother, he said, we must devise a plan. She pulled the hood from her face, met his gaze with an unblinking stare. The look that passed between them carried complete understanding. They had one weapon left, and both knew it. Treachery. Summon Count Fenring from his quarters, the Reverend Mother said. The Padishah Emperor nodded, waved for one of his aides to obey that command.